struggling sinners and thieves were lifted up from the ashes and out came the song the redeemed the song the redeemed can you hear the sound of melodies oh the sound of melodies rising And that's for uh, Elaine and Duncan. They're leaving in the morning for Africa. Duncan's right over there. Where's Elaine? She's right back there. Would you guys stand up? So if you're near them, you just reach out and grab them, okay? So you, that, and that's, isn't that weird? But, and uh, 
What's that? And Angie, where's Angie? There's Angie. Uh, they're all with um, Community Uplift, and Duncan works with Partnering in Africa, and Elaine works with uh, Orphans, and so let's send them out, okay? And then you can send, send me on my way preaching. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for Elaine and Duncan, and we thank you, God, that just as we get to be a part of what Dick and Marietta are doing, we get to be a part of what Elaine and Duncan are doing, and uh, Lord, what you're doing in Africa. We pray for both of them, Lord Jesus, that you would watch over them and you would move in them and through them. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible uh, gift it is to partner with so many ministries around the world. And so, Lord, would you give Duncan a heart for your body and connecting all these different parts and bringing light and water and medicine, all sorts of things to people struggling in Africa. And Lord, for Elaine, we pray that you would just grow her mother's heart bigger than ever as she ministers to those little kids and loves them uh, with the love that comes from you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that we can be a part, Lord. We bless them in your name. And now, Lord God, we also ask that you would help us to preach, that this just wouldn't be me yapping, but it would be us thinking about you, worshiping you, becoming more like you, Lord Jesus, loving you. So it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. Several uh, years ago, a fellow named Robert Gass from, from Boulder took his family on this kind of like family adventure camping trip in Baja, California. They were in a rented camper. It was the last night of vacation. They were camping on a beach somewhere just south of uh, Tijuana. In the middle of the night, Robert said he woke to the sound of banging voices outside. And so he jumped down from the little loft bed in this camper, landed on the floor of the camper naked, staring out the front window. And what he saw immediately woke him from his fog. Around the camper were several armed men yelling, um, screaming, shaking the, shaking the camper. Robert jumped into the driver's seat and turned the ignition, and it wouldn't start. Just then, the glass on the driver's side window shattered. A hand reached through, and Robert smashed it. Still thinking that he'd be able to save his family, he tried to start the, the van again, the camper van again, and it wouldn't start, it wouldn't go. A rifle all at once jammed in his throat, lodged in his throat, and one of the bandits who spoke a little English started yelling, money, money. And so Robert, he reached under the seat and he grabbed his, his wallet and handed him some money out of his wallet, handed him his wallet, and he hoped that that would be the end of it but it wasn't. They entered the van, pushed Robert onto the floor, held him there. They had bandanas over their faces, just like in the movies. There were four of them. One had a rifle, one had a rusty carving knife, one had a big machete, and one was unarmed. While the one held Robert against the floor with the rifle pressed against his neck, the other started tearing through the camper. It was then that Robert felt this overwhelming fear. He began to shake. But he says just then, as he was about to lose it, he had a thought. 
he thought to himself, this, this would be a good time to pray. He breathed and he asked God for help. And just then, quite clearly, according to Robert, he heard these words. They're from Psalm 23. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And he thought, I, I, I don't get it. And then he said he had this image of himself in his mind preparing a feast for these, for these bandits and serving them. And he thought to himself, he thought, well, what if these bandits were my friends and I prepared a, a table for them? He says that as part of him envisioned horrifying scenes of rape and murder, another part of him remembered that his purpose in the world was to serve people. And at that, he said, he looked up. And suddenly he realized, well, these bandits are just kids. <laughs> Their violence is, is fear, and they really don't know what they're doing. And then he had this bizarre flash of insight. He realized, hey, if I was to prepare a table for them, that would mean helping them do a better job of robbing me. Robert turned his head towards the one that spoke English, and he said, hey, hey, you're, you're missing some of the best stuff. Under that pile over there is, is a very nice camera. They gave him this really strange look, but sure enough, it was there. He said, yeah, it's a 35 millimeter. It takes really good pictures. And then he said, you know, your friends are making such a mess. You, you'll miss the good stuff. I'll be happy to show you. And before long, he said it turned into like show and tell. Guitar, you, you, you play, here you go, you can have it. Sony Walkman, uh, you want some tapes? Here, they're, they're for you. Robert said he thought about the inequalities in the world, the distribution of wealth, and he says at that point he even felt this weird tinge of joy that he could somehow gift these poor Mexican kids. They let him put his pants on. That changed things. The gift-giving changed the atmosphere, he said, but not totally. The young man with the carving knife was erratic. He said he looked like he had been intoxicated or something, and he kept yelling, drugs, money, more money, and then he found a bottle of his wife's diarrhea medication, and Robert said he tried to explain to him, don't take that, but then the, the fellow just wouldn't listen, and he said, well, he thought he deserved it anyway. <laughs> Serves him right. Meanwhile, his wife and two-year-old daughter huddled in the back of the van, the little one didn't know the difference, but Robert's wife was entertaining visions of rape and the kidnap of her daughter. About then, Robert spontaneously asked, he said, I, I just asked this. He said, I asked, would you like something to eat? He proceeded to open the refrigerator. It was full of tofu and sprouts and yogurt and nut butter Nothing that anyone would recognize as food outside of Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> and then Robert said he found an apple. He, he held it out to the one with the machete. Robert said at that point he remembered that an, an awful lot of culture sharing food was like a kind of communion. And he said he could see it as he handed it to this young kid. He, he struggled for a moment and then he took it. He couldn't steal the apple because Robert gave the apple. He forgave the apple. Well, soon the English-speaking bandit informed them that they were all going to go for a ride. 
and fear came back. Robert begged them to take the camper and leave them there on the beach, but they refused. In Robert's mind, they became bandits once again. So driving through the desert in the night, surrounded by fear, dreaming pictures of rape and murder, he planned how they would push open the door, jump out into the night and escape. And then he says the strange thoughts came again. He thought, what if they were my guests? And so along with his two-year-olds, he started to sing, thinking if they were my guests, I'd sing songs. His daughter, Layla, was flashing her huge two-year-old smile. The young bandits couldn't help smiling back at her, and then Robert realized that he wasn't being a good host. His guests didn't know the song. He, he, he'd been singing a song in English, and he thought for a moment, and then he said, Guantanamera, Guajira, Guantanamera, Guantanamera, Guajira, Guantanamera, and that did it. They all began singing along as they drove through the desert in the middle of the night. Finally, they pulled down a dark and isolated road. Robert and his wife looked at each other. They thought it was here that their life would come to an end. But then the bandits just opened the door and got out. Robert began to realize that these Mexican boys had just driven themselves home. They had been a long way from home, and now they were home. They said adios, and Robert was left with the one who spoke broken English. The boy struggled to communicate, and then he said this, Please forgive us. Mi hombres and me, we are poor people. Our fathers are poor. This is what we do for making the money. I'm sorry. We didn't know it was you. You're such a good man, and your wife and child so nice. He apologized several times and then says, please don't think bad about us. I hope we didn't ruin your vacation. <laughs> then he reached in his pocket, pulled out Robert's wallet, handed him his driver's license and credit card, saying, we, we can't really use these things. Then he handed Robert some Mexican money, saying, here, for the gasoline. <laughs> and then Robert writes, he took my hand and looked in my eye. For a moment, the veils were gone. And he said, adios, with God. Our bandit guests disappeared into the night, and then my family held each other and cried. <laughs> Isn't that a, a sweet story? I read it in a third helping of chicken soup for the soul. And now some of you are thinking, yeah, I thought so, something like that. And Robert Gass is probably some kind of new ager and bolder, and yeah, I think he is a new ager, but more than that, he's probably a liberal, a bolder liberal. You know, like those commercials from Mark Udall or whatever, they say, he's a bolder liberal. They're the worst kind, the antithesis of a Colorado Springs conservative, a bolder liberal. That's bad. 
And you know, it's true that liberals often overestimate the goodness of human nature. And so we do kind of naturally think, cute story, but what happens when the apple doesn't work? What happens when the feast doesn't work, when the kindness doesn't work? You know, I have a friend here in this church that befriended some Mexican boys down near a beach in Mexico, and for her kindness, they just brutalized her all night long and left her for dead. I have other friends in this church who extended kindness only to be raped and tortured. In Colombia with Honey, I met Alex. Uh, Alex was attacked on, on a bus as uh, rebels uh, beheaded people on the bus and had shot his eyes out. Alex screamed at the top of his lungs, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, and he kept screaming as they tried to cut his head off. The apple may work on Mexican boys, but what about people like that? What about people like this? Like this. They sang Lord of Mercy. <laughs> I'm not sure they understand what mercy is. Those are Muslim fundamentalists singing rap songs on Arab TV, vowing the destruction of the United States, praising Hamas and Hezbollah. You know, Hamas and Hezbollah are both terrorist organizations who seek the total annihilation of Israel. Both have been based in Syria. What are the people of God to do with a rogue nation state like Syria? Give them an apple? Care for them a feast? Well, let's look at our Bible verse. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Wouldn't that bug you? And he said, Go and see where he is, that, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he's in Dothan. 
So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So you get the picture, right? Middle of the night, surrounded by Syrian banditos. The Syrians are using an entire army to set an ambush for just one man. The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers take counsel together against one dude, Elisha. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. Horses and chariots that are like made of fire and light. You know, in chapter 2, Elisha saw Elijah taken up to heaven in one of these chariots, and he didn't get burned. Cool. This is the army of heaven. It's the heavenly host, and they've been there all along. You know, I bet when you see that, it kind of changes the way you go about battle. Verse 18, and when the Syrians came down against him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. The King James reads like this, smite them with blindness. And so he smote them with blindness. Smite is better because the same Hebrew word shows up in the next paragraph and smite works in both places. Smite them with blindness. And now this is cool. The word translated blindness only appears here and in one other place in the Old Testament. In both places, it refers to something that happens when a person sees an angel. It's a plural that indicates majesty, and it appears to be related to light because it's in the root. So one suggested translation of this word is bedazzled. They were smitten with bedazzlement, blinded by the light. It's like they too saw the horses and the chariots and they were just overwhelmed. Remember it was St. Paul who was on the road to Damascus, Syria as a persecutor of the church when he was bedazzled and blinded by light and the light was Jesus. In fact, did you know Jesus is the Lord of hosts? He's the Lord of the heavenly army. And so Paul was bedazzled and they led him back to the city where his eyes were opened and he was ambushed by a banquet of grace. Well, the Syrians are blinded. Next verse. And Elijah said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Now at this time, Samaria was the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. So Elisha leads them into their worst nightmare, what they thought of as hell, the heart of their enemy's kingdom. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, Open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I smite them? 
Shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them literally? Shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? You know, that's an interesting question because technically they've already been smoted, right? Shall I smite them? And he answered, you shall not smite them down. Would you smite those whom you have taken captive with your sword or with your bow? No need to smite, for they've already been smitten, captivated by light. Next sentence. Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. They repented. Now, if you read on, you know that their repentance broke. They eventually went against that, but they repented. So you get the picture? This is such a cool story. Syria is setting ambushes for Israel. And then Syria is setting an ambush for Elisha, the man of God. They're sending their chariots and horses by stealth at night. But even as Syria is setting an ambush for the man of God, God is setting an ambush for Syria. And he too is sending his horses and his chariots by stealth. So Syria sets an ambush of darkness and death. And God sets an ambush of light and life. God ambushes Syria with a banquet. God loves his enemies, or lures his enemies, because he does love them, to a dark place where he can captivate them with light. And from there, he draws them into the heart of his city where he opens their eyes and smites them with a feast. You know, God's response to bandits, terrorists, and rogue nation states is unusual, isn't it? (laughs) A few weeks ago, we saw how God smote Jericho with fire, and the entire procedure was very unusual, for the smitten were harem, holy. They were valuable to God. After that, we saw how God smote Nineveh, with a word. Remember that? Nineveh was overturned by a word and the sign of Jonah, the prophet, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And now God smites Syria with a banquet, a feast fight. (laughs) He's feast fighting. They're smitten with fire, a word, and a banquet. How weird is that? And we could write the whole feast-fighting thing off as some little Old Testament anomaly, except for the fact that the whole Bible seems to be preoccupied with banquets and feasting. And this idea that God is not just fixing to ambush Syria. He's fixing to ambush the entire world with a feast. Isaiah 25. On this mountain, now this mountain is Mount Zion. He's referring to the capital city of the United Israel on Jerusalem. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts, and that is the Lord of the flaming chariots and horses, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. 
of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. He will destroy death. How do you destroy death? With more death? Like non-ending death, a really nasty death. Is that how you destroy death? How do you overcome evil? With more evil, more terror, more fear? How do you conquer the darkness? With more darkness or something else? He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You see, it's a prophecy of the great messianic banquet. And the Bible ends with the picture of the messianic banquet, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Israel was to live every day in the hope of that banquet. And I counted one time, there were something like 80 days of commanded feasting in um, an Israelite, a Hebrew year. The Jews were to go to the capital in the temple on Mount Zion and feast before the altar in front of this huge veil, the veil that separated God from his people. Eighty days of fasting, or feasting, sorry, because we think it would be the other way around. Eighty days of commanded feasting and only one day of commanded fasting. And you know what day that was? The day of Yom Kippur the day of atonement when the high priest would go behind the veil and make sacrifices that didn't work. (laughs) When Jesus died, that veil ripped top to the bottom. And now the one day of fasting in the Hebrew calendar is a feast that we call Easter. And speaking of Jesus, you know, he was like a walking feast, wasn't he? He's always telling parables about feasts, turning water into wine, multiplying fish and loaves so everybody could have something to eat. He got in a lot of trouble for too much feasting. They accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. But worse than that, he ate with tax collectors and sinners, bandits and prostitutes and no do-gooders. You know, in Jesus' day, to eat with someone was to include that someone in your definition of the consummated kingdom of God. It was to include them in your sanctuary. To share your table was to share your life. It was communion. And Jesus ate with notorious sinners. That's astounding. But I think even more astounding is that notorious sinners loved to eat with Jesus. I mean, look around. Notorious sinners are not lining up to eat lunch with religious people, Pat Roberts and Billy Graham or me. You know, I mean, who wants condemnation for lunch, you know? So that makes you wonder, what was Jesus serving? 
What was Jesus serving for dinner and aren't we supposed to serve the same thing? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think it tells us there, Paul tells us. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry. Now that word ministry is diakonia. It literally means to serve a table, like a waiter. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So you see, our banquet that we are supposed to serve is reconciliation, mercy. That's our Lord's banquet, and we're to serve his banquet, not counting the world's trespasses against them. And so let me ask you, number one, Is that the way people see the church in America? Oh yeah, those are the guys that do not count the world's trespasses against them. (laughs) Those guys. You know, we seem to be a pretty coveted political force in the upcoming election, and so this is the second question. Why is that? I mean, isn't government all about laws and counting folks, folks' trespasses against them? <laughs> the rule of law? I mean, isn't that what worldly governments are? Legislation, law, counting trespasses against them? And number three, what is a war on terror? Is it to catch terrorists and count their trespasses against them? No, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not opposed to worldly government or military action or the power of the sword. I believe God ordains governments to restrain evil. But in this election year, I'm just reminding us that's not our game. (laughs) That's not our playing field. So I hope you vote, but legislation and law is not what we are serving for dinner. You see, governments can restrain terrorists, but they cannot conquer terror. Governments can restrain evil, but it takes something far more powerful than that to overcome evil. It takes a banquet. Perfect love casts out terror. 1 John chapter 4. It takes a banquet. And no government of this world can serve that banquet. By definition, if they do, they're no longer a worldly government. It takes a banquet. And you've been called to serve that banquet. Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. He'll repay the way he chooses to, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Isn't that wild? We overcome evil with a feast of mercy. 
But check this out. The feast is truly a fire. In so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Have you ever been, you know, just like a really big self-centered jerk to somebody? Like your wife, William? You're shaking your head. Been a self-centered jerk to your wife, and then she turns around is just profoundly kind to you? Don't you hate that? I do. You want to be a jerk back. It burns when she does that. You see, your ugliness in that instance is being burned by her loveliness. Your evil is being burned by her good. You see, the banquet of grace is judgment today and at the end of time. If you resist it, it burns. If you surrender to it, it's the sweetest wine. If you resist and surrender, it cuts you in two like a sharp two-edged sword. It separates you like wheat from chaff. And so some people, they run from it. They run from it into the outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth away from the table of the Lord. But the banquet is mercy. The mercy is judgment. So you see, I'm not called to pronounce judgment, but my refusal to pronounce judgment is judgment. My refusal to strike back is judgment on the one who struck. Our refusal to count trespasses is judgment on this whole trespass counting, ungracious, ugly, dark world. You see, the love of Jesus exposes the hatred of this world. And so we're called to serve grace, and grace is judgment, but I'm not called to judge. And you see, that's just incredibly liberating. 